0: Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr.
1: We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Linda Schiffino, the author of Neighborhood Girl, a memoir of loss, longing, and letting go. Linda Shafino's beloved childhood neighborhood is gone, family homes and church demolished, family members and neighbors long dead. Faced with heartbreaking loss, Shafino hoards treasured family memories and customs. When her son asks if it's okay to bring a ham to Christmas Eve feast of the seven fishes, Shafino fears the dismantling of her family traditions. Linda Shafino, a writer living in Pittsburgh, holds an MFA in creative nonfiction from Carlow University, And writes with Mad Women in the Attic. She's had essays published in Adelaide Magazine, Avalon Literary Journal, Brevity Blog, Dovetails Literary Journal, Northern Appalachia Review, and elsewhere. Find Linda on Facebook, Instagram, and at com. Linda, welcome.
2: Hi, Lawrence. It's good to be with you.
1: Well, I have to say, what caught my attention in the intro was the story of bringing a ham to Christmas Eve, Feast of the Seven Fishes. Was that a true story?
2: Well, unfortunately, it's a true story. And it was a really difficult um, question uh, that my son posed to me because the Feast of the Seven Fishes is a very strong Italian-American tradition and was a strong tradition, certainly, in my family. So when my son asked if he could bring a ham to the Feast of the Seven Fishes, you can only imagine how difficult that was for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, when I think of fishes and Italians... I think of Luca Brasi swimming with the fishes, but I guess this is this a completely different uh, yeah, situation? Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this
2: is this is based on the um, the tradition that you can't eat meat right. the day before Christmas. It's a, a Roman Catholic tradition.
1: Mm-hmm. Like also fish on Fridays, kind of thing too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly, it's yeah. a, it's a similar kind of tradition.
1: So. This neighborhood, tell me about the neighborhood that uh, is fading away, this Italian neighborhood.
2: Yeah, this neighborhood has actually faded away um, some years ago. When I grew up in the Larmer Avenue neighborhood in the 1950s, it was a very strong Italian-American enclave here in the eastern part of Pittsburgh. Um, I guess it was Pittsburgh's original Little Italy. And um, it was a neighborhood of southern Italian immigrants who had settled there and were mostly people um, who were just sort of getting by, working class, or in many cases, like my family, working poor.
1: Yeah, when I think about immigration, uh, I relate it to uh, at least the majority of my ancestry being German immigrants that came over in colonial times. and. At that time, there were uh, English and Quakers and so on who really didn't know Franklin, who actually wrote some nasty things about the Germans. He was afraid they were going to take over Pennsylvania, and uh, that would be bad. So there's always been some angst about immigration. Uh, Every every generation seems to have something. It's always a different group of people, too. So what would be different about the Italian experience, do you think?
2: Um, In some ways, it's really... um... The same as every wave of immigrants, um, like what you described with your German ancestors and my Italian-American ancestors. It's almost like the new wave of people that come to the um And when the family, the oldest kid hits the little brother and then the little brother kicks the dog. It's It's like the person or the group of people who are least empowered get kind of beat up on for a while until a new wave comes along. Um, And so it's an unfortunate part of our history, but it is what it is.
1: Yeah. So your book covers, like, what span of time?
2: Um, My book starts out um, in my childhood in the 1950s and really talks about the beauty of this um, close-knit Italian-American neighborhood. I always felt safe. I was always well-fed. Um, my family, my grandmother, and all of my aunts and uncles, or most of them, lived within a few blocks of each other. And it was a very tight, close-knit community. And then that neighborhood really changed over the years. And the people died. And I experienced a lot of loss. And so the the book takes um, the reader through this period of loss and how I try to hang on to those people and that place and those customs. Um, and it... It ends, really, the epilogue I wrote just a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah. Is there anything left from that neighborhood that you could go back to today and say, well, that particular restaurant or that particular store, sandwich shop, I don't know, something?
2: Yeah. You know, Lawrence, I drove through the neighborhood somewhere around five years ago, and I hadn't driven through in probably 30 or 40 years. And I had to pull over because I was crying so hard. Hmm. It was just grass and small trees and broken concrete all of the buildings of my childhood were gone except for one a sausage stock shop that <laughs> stood there through all of this um the neighborhood was really demolished uh, literally demolished and there was just nothing left of it it had gone through different iterations after the italian americans moved out um there was a time that it was a neighborhood riddled with crime and gangs, and then the, the gangs left, and it was absolutely nothing. Fortunately, today, the neighborhood is very, very slowly beginning to be revitalized. Um, my old elementary school, the building of which had been empty for probably being made into apartment buildings. Um, and so I'm hoping that there'll be you know a new generation of neighborhood girls that'll grow up in that
0: neighborhood
1: yeah on that note we're going to take our first break we're talking to Linda Shafino We'll be right back. <music>
0: Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent, diverse authors. Hearth and Home Press brings you When I Listen to a Farmer by Pete Curran, a book of photos and stories from American farmers. Also check out Fly Fishing for Trout and Bass, A Beginner's Quick Guide by Charles F. Johnson, and At Home, 92 Home-Based Activities to Keep Adults and Children Busy, Sane, and Centered by Prudence Ingerman. Find these and other intriguing works at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Linda Shafino, the author of Neighborhood
1: Girl, a memoir of loss, longing, and letting go. And Linda, I have to say, I I kind of feel the melancholy of the experience of noticing that things from your childhood aren't there anymore. And, uh, you know, it it really is a reminder of our mortality, but also the mortality of neighborhoods, uh, the cycles that happen economically and for whatever reason, like... I'm thinking maybe, I'm just guessing uh, that your neighborhood that you grew up in was probably a very old neighborhood, that the buildings there might have been built a 100 years before, not new buildings built by the Italian immigrants, but uh, a neighborhood that was taken over by them, and that was something else before that. Was that the case?
2: I think that's likely the case. Um, This neighborhood probably started up after The turn of the 20th century, so in the early 1900s. And of course, then, you know, I grew up there in the 19, starting in the 1950s. And so the buildings were already old. Um, But then what happened was, after a lot of the, um, a lot of the neighbors left, um, then the the properties began to deteriorate. Um, And so they were torn down. Hmm. But they were, you're right, they were already old. This was not a new neighborhood. It certainly wasn't a wealthy neighborhood. Um, these were people that living, were living from one paycheck to another. So who knows how well they were able to take care of those properties.
1: Yeah, so I know growing up in Reading, Pennsylvania, the Italians that were around in my youth, and I grew up in the 60s and 70s as a, a small child, teenager and into the 80s, but... uh the Italians were most known for the food. So, yeah, the pizza shops, but also there were some pretty good restaurants. The most popular thing though were the sandwich shops. You know, you had to get your your cheesesteak, your your Italian sandwich, whatever that was with the capicola and the salami <laughs> and the, you know, the provolone and vegetables and you had to be the right roll and in Reading, Pennsylvania, there were sandwich shops it seemed like on every corner very blue collar working neighborhood people buying you know their lunches and taking them to work and uh you know those things uh, i remember going to a sandwich shop with my friends uh, my we were on a baseball team in high school you go to the sandwich shop i don't know how we did this but we would eat an entire italian sandwich get a large milkshake and a bag of chips and we'd eat that on the bus on the way to the game <laughs> which was probably <laughs> 3 or 4000 calories and then we'd play baseball and we never put on weight so but of course we were 16 it all I'd, worked out yeah
2: calories in calories out <laughs> yeah
1: now we also had uh where I grew up we had a Jewish section we had a Greek section we had Italians we had Germans um it was a pretty you know diverse neighborhood mostly middle class um, But uh, tell, me, tell me some things in, in this neighborhood that really stood out, like you most hold on to or most miss.
2: Well, you know, um, a lot of the uh, folks that lived in the neighborhood, like me, lived um, in apartments on the second and third floors of uh, stores, storefronts. And we lived upstairs from Mr. Carrazza's grocery store. Mr. Carrazza, like everyone else in the neighborhood, was an Italian immigrant. Um, but he, he had enough means to buy this small apartment building and this grocery store. But what sticks in my mind is that when people went into, the neighbors went into Mr. Carrazzo's store, they got what groceries they needed and put them on the counter. And Mr. Carrazzo sat behind the counter with a brown ledger book. And he would turn to the page that had their name at the top. And he would write down what they bought, and then put it in a bag, and they would leave. Mm. There was never any money exchanged. There were no receipts. And on payday, the neighborhood women, like my mother, would go to Mister Kuraza and say, "What do I owe?" And he would tell them, and they would pay a small, a fraction of what was there on their balance sheet. Mm. And it was always okay. And no one ever asked for a receipt. I would go with my mother down to Mr. Carrazzo the first of every month to pay the rent, and she would hit pouch. He never counted it, and she never insulted him by asking for a receipt. This was the kind of trust and community that I grew up with. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing. And I think about that, and I, don't know, I think, my goodness, we've come so far from that.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, no. Understand I've studied economics and run businesses. So I'm thinking of Mr. Calazzo here. How does he make a living if he's not making a living on a groceries? groceries?
2: I, I know. <laughs> right? I, I don't I don't know how he did it, but he was a really, really kind person. And when I was doing research um, for this book, I, somehow I found ancestors of Mr. Colazo. And I communicated with them um, by email, and they sent me a picture of him. So I was able to write about him and and describe him uh, with greater clarity. Uh, and, and he was just a really wonderful man, but he wasn't unusual for the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, no, they're definitely, as you go back, uh, more of a sense of community. I, I know growing up in my neighborhood... We played with the neighborhood kids. We could ride our bikes around the block. Uh, we could cross the street and go up, down wherever. I know as I got a little older, I could go anywhere. I just say, "Mom, I'm going for a bike ride." I could be five miles away, out in the country, up on the mountain. There, there wasn't, uh, and, and all the the a lot of, a lot of the houses had stay at home moms or retired people. Everybody so, was anything. You went to the nearest house and you knocked on the door and you probably knew that person and they'd bring you in, they'd call your mother or uh, the the person you're with, their parents or whoever and report the problem and say where they were. I mean, it was... Uh, and then we had neighborhood stores too, like you go to a sandwich shop, candy, show, candy store and so on. Not not these convenience stores like we have now with that are corporate with the gas stations. So, uh, yeah, it did seem uh, a little more... Uh, close-knit, little more, I don't know what the word is, their, their sense of community. People cared wow. more about everybody else. You didn't lock your doors. And while you might not talk to your neighbors every day, you often see them talking over the hedge or over the fence about something. So, And
2: what well, happened and to that? Our neighborhood um, also had small-time criminals um, that sat on the stoop all day. And I remember as a child wondering why they never went to work. Like my dad, who carried a lunch pail and got on the streetcar and headed off to his job as a laborer. Um, but the guys, there were the guys on the stoop. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was six years old, I had a numbers running gig where I, I <laughs> delivered little slips of paper that were, you know, gambling, um, running numbers in exchange for chocolate bars until my father found out about it. <laughs> so it was the neighborhood. It was not without
1: its grittiness, if mm-hmm. you will. That's interesting. Boy, you, you sort sure of got started early. <laughs>
2: it, it was a short lived gig. Hey, just, just have the little girl
1: run the numbers. Nobody will suspect it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, speaking of the little girl, the cover of the book is priceless. And that picture of the little girl in the gown with that frown, you have to tell us about that.
0: That's.
2: <laughs> you know, I think that picture captures the essence of the neighborhood. Here's me and my first Holy Communion dress, and there was an innocence about that neighborhood. But I'm standing in front of Ursula's beer store, and there's a Budweiser sign behind me. And I think, here again, it captures the nature of this neighborhood that had a little bit of everything. It had, you know, a grittiness along with, um, along with the innocence. And why my mother decided to pose me in my first Holy Communion dress in front of the beer store, looking into the sun, and I'm squinting.
0: Mm-hmm. I
2: have no idea why she thought that was a good a good place to take my first Holy Communion picture. But today, I'm grateful for that picture, because I think it's a terrific book cover.
1: Oh, it's fantastic. It Yeah, it has everything. Yeah, it captures the grittiness. It also captures a sense of humor. And uh, it makes you wonder, what the heck is going on here? And then we find out you're running numbers, too. How many could you fit yeah, in your seriously. communion dress?
2: <laughs> For Mounds bars. <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> that, that's hilarious. So, yeah, what was going on that day with the communion dress? Do you remember?
2: Well, yeah, that was the day of my first Holy Communion, which is a very big deal in the Roman Catholic Church. Um Uh, It's the day that you first receive Holy Communion, the body of Christ, and it comes after, a month or so after, um, the very first time that you um, go to confession, and I don't know how much you know about that, but it's when you go into the little wooden box and tell the priest your sins. Um, and that was an experience. (laughs) I had to sort of make up a few things because I didn't know what to say. Mm. And the whole thing, um, was, you know, ritualistic and ceremonial, but for a kid, seven years old, you really, you really don't know what's going on. You know, they put you in this scratchy white dress and a veil that money aunt made. And I was just glad when it was over and I could take off that outfit and put on my shorts and t-shirt and go outside and play
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you kind of look like you couldn't wait to get out of it couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well Linda on that note we're going to take another break I'm talking to Linda Shapino. we'll be right back
2: Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors if fiction whether historical murder mysteries or spy thrillers take your fancy check out Milford House Press releases of interest include The Class Assignment is Murder by Carolyn Kleinman Dead Man Who Walks Away, Parts 1 and 2, by Herbert Dean Ely, or The Immigrant's Wife, by J.B. Brooks. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypress.com.
1: I'm back with Linda Shafino, the author of Neighborhood Girl, a memoir of loss, longing, and letting go. Linda, this neighborhood sounds like a place I'd love to visit. Wish we could get in a time machine and go back. Ah, you and Yeah. Um... Were there any festivals or any like big events during the year that were special to that neighborhood?
2: There were, um, and one in particular was the um, Saint Rocco festival. Um, Saint Rocco was the patron saint um, of some of the smaller towns in southern Italy, and it was a very the Saint Rocco festival was a very big deal in our neighborhood. And it started out in the morning at church with a mass, um, and the Saint Rocco the statue of Saint Rocco would be on a float and after mass there would be a huge procession with a band and um girls in their white for her first holy communion dresses and they would go through the neighborhood and the saint rocco statue had a sash down the front of it and people would pin dollar bills now these are can you imagine in the 1950s what a dollar bill was worth to these, you know, working poor American immigrants. Um, And so I strongly remember that. And then at night, we would go to a um, a big club yard across from the school, and there would be a bandstand, and there would be tables selling sausage sandwiches and pizza. And the highlight of that um, nighttime festival for me was my great-grandfather would get up on the stage and sing El Solomio. The problem is, by the time it was time for him to do this, he was drunk. And so my (laughs) mother, as soon as he would start up the steps, and my heart would leap thinking, oh, I'm going to hear him sing, my mother would grab my hand and say, okay, it's time to go, because she was embarrassed by him. Mm -hmm. And so I write a lot about that great-grandfather um and what a character he was. But that whole Saint Rocco Festival had a very um play a very big role in my neighborhood.
1: Well I have to ask you, uh did you manage to save the recipes?
2: I do have lots of recipes. Um some but not they didn't write them down. But I learned, I learned my mother taught me how to make what we call all-day Sunday pasta sauce, you know, the pasta sauce that sits mm-hmm. on the stove for the whole day. Um, my grandmother taught me how to make homemade pasta. My aunt taught me how to make pizza. And so, and um, next week, my granddaughter will come over and we will make Italian pitzels. I don't know if you know what those are, the no. sort of waffle-looking, um, crisp Italian cookies okay. um, that my aunt taught me how to make. And so I make these things, a lot of them not from written recipes but from memory.
1: Yeah, I know my uh my I remember going to my great grandmother's house and she was of Pennsylvania Dutch origin and she made the best Pennsylvania Dutch chicken pot pie and the best mm. sugar cookies. And there were other things that are very they're attributed to Pennsylvania Dutch. Actually their origins are all over the place, but uh you know, I remember that at her place, I remember running around her Victorian house. You could run through the whole front porch and in the kitchen door and through the living room and out the side door and then up the other side <laughs> of the porch and I think when I was five, that was my racetrack and then she'd give me more sugar cookies, and that would keep me going <laughs> but and uh, these
2: memories are strong ones; they yeah, really stick with us,
1: yeah, even as a little tot um very special, but I know the point of my my saying this is we still don't know the sugar cookie recipe. it's been lost. My, my mother's experimented with it. You know, she, as a granddaughter, was there quite a bit with her grandmother and learned a lot of things from her, but did not uh, write down the sugar cookie recipe. Now, it can't be too much, right? It's flour, sugar, yeah,
2: you know, yeah. maybe eggs. some eggs.
1: Who knows? But, yeah, priceless.
2: Well, you, you know, that, that really, in some ways, is symbolic of the whole message of my book. We can hold on to things no matter how tightly we squeeze them, but they will never be exactly the same. And at some point, you have to let your hand go and open it up and allow new generations to put their own spin on things. And that was something that I actually learned as I wrote the book, that it can't be exactly the same as it always was. It's okay to have a hand on that table i knew some of my italian american relatives would be shocked to hear this but but it has to be okay because you cannot exactly replicate what came before you nor should you because the new generations have have a right and and to to have their input um and and, but it's a hard lesson for some of us to learn it was hard for me
1: well, Linda, I think it's great that you're writing about it and that it's it's going to be remembered. I know as an historian myself, you know, it's very interesting to learn about how things were in the past and how they're no longer and why and what was it like then. And if someone doesn't write about it, it's going to be forgotten. So it's great Well, that-
2: you know, I had written, I had uh, read some about the Polish poet, uh, Czesław Melash, who said that. Those of us who are living owe to those who can no longer speak to tell their stories. And I thought, I can't make my mother and father and aunts and uncles be alive again, but I can tell their stories. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you've captured their personalities that uh, they sound <laughs> like amazing people. Hey, what else are you doing now? Are you writing anything new, anything in the works?
2: I am. um it's actually, it's another memoir, and um, it uh, was inspired by the um, my grandmother, who told me many, many years ago that she came to this, when she came to this country, she was kidnapped. And I thought it was a strange story, and I was shocked that the whole family wasn't talking about this. And many years later, once I joined Ancestry and looked on the Ellis Island website, I found with traveling with a man whose name I did not recognize. And so that inspired me to do research and write about this little girl's story, my grandmother. And I've since traveled to my ancestral home in southern Italy this past year. Um, and, and so I'm writing about that experience of exploring this mystery of this little girl, who what she kidnapped or not, or what happened to her.
1: Wow. I mean, you, you hear about this Today at the border with the children being brought across by strangers and, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that, whether where they're going to end up and human trafficking and so on. It this sounds very fascinating. I'm really worried about her, but obviously things seem to have turned out okay since you're yeah, here, right? Yeah, she,
2: she was okay. <laughs> but I was more worried about her mother. Mm-hmm. Her You know, my great-grandmother. Was her child torn from her and what happened to her? Right. and so it's really she her mystery um is what propelled me to travel to southern italy to this little remote place that took 20 hours to get to from Pittsburgh. Wow. um yeah it, it, it's it's a fascinating exploration for me and i'm really enjoying writing about
1: it. yeah uh italy's one of my favorite countries to visit and uh you have the you know such a wide, expansive history, but I love the Roman history too, and going way back. Your yeah. ancestral village—any traces of ancient Rome there?
2: Um, not really. Um, well, maybe, maybe some. There's a tower, and so okay. <laughs> I don't know if the. I think it was Byzantine. Um, I think there's more because it's so far south. I think there's more um, uh, Greek influence in mm-hmm. the architecture and so on. But I've also been to Rome many times. I lived in Rome for a semester and taught American students who were studying abroad. And, um, and so I have immersed myself in that Roman culture, and it was wonderful.
1: Well, Linda, it's been a pleasure having you. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the new book that's going to come along, uh, but also sharing these memories. They're, they're fantastic.
0: This has been the Sunbury
1: Press Book Show.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.